Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lines Led by Donkeys podcast, but uh, I guess you probably already knew that. If you like what we do here on the show, consider supporting us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash donkeys. Just $5 per month gets you every regular episode early, access to our community Discord, a digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, as well as its audiobook, read by me, and over five years of bonus content. By supporting the show, you support us and allow us to keep our show as it has always been ad-free. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me today in this World War One era canvas fighter plane that will make more sense in a little bit is Tom. What's up, buddy? I mean, like, <laughs> I'm good. I mean, like, much like a World War One canvas fighter plane, I have crashed into this seat and I don't think I can get back up. So honestly, I'm feeling kind of the same today. Uh- <laughs> yeah, like uh, mental health chat is done. Fitness chat is back. Um, I was just in the gym, hit a very uh, uh, intense leg workout in the space of 45 minutes. Uh, so I don't think I can walk right now. But uh, when I was walking home, I texted you. This is a very specific situation. I don't think there is any single type of person more arrogant on the planet than a older Italian guy in the gym who is still in good shape. I think I countered with you could have just said an Italian guy and I would have said yes. Because like I was just in the change room, I was like getting in the shower and there was like a group of guys like talking or whatever. And, like, one of them is, like, started got back going to the gym and all this sort of stuff. So, like, other people are giving them advice. There's a younger guy and there's the Italian guy. And then when I came back from my shower and was getting changed, the uh, the younger guy had left. And the Italian guy was just talking the most shit about him. He was like, yeah, you know, like, he's young, but, you know, his body is good, but he is young. You know, look at me. I'm older. Look at my body. Look at my body. I look good for my age. And I'm just like, you are such a fucking dickhead. Yeah. All right, fucking like Mr. TRT uh, uh, money, like calm down. I counter with um, no one is more confident in the gym than a guy who um, only does upper body and is wearing a Gymshark t-shirt. Is taking the meaning of looking like a triangle way too literally. He'll give you the most fucked up bro science explanation of what you need to do in the gym while clearly skipping a full seventy percent of uh, of fitness. Uh, The man, the man has never squatted. He does not do deadlifts. Um, He's very concerned about the size of his calves. And he takes up the entire cable machine so he can do flies, even though there's a dumbbell rack right next to him that's completely open. Look, I will defend bro science. The basic principle of pick heavy thing up, put it down with good form just works for the vast majority of people. Yeah, but that's not that's not bro science, bro. Like that is that is that's just like the basics of 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 kind of sort of getting in shape. Like bro science is shit that. Is, oh, you got to confuse the muscle. Yeah, exactly. You like they read it. They read it on bodybuilding.com and they're still having the how many days in a, in a week debate like eight years later. And they insist if you consume like, I don't know, like 600 euros worth of supplements every month, it's totally what you need. Your muscles are like the uh, the American incursion into against the North Vietnamese army. You got to keep them confused, you know. I I like to I treat my mu- muscle attrition. <laughs> yes, I believe in waging a clandestine or asymmetrical guerrilla warfare against my body. That's why whenever I do leg day, I dig myself a punji pit and just walk directly into it. <laughs> yeah, and then you have to do like box squats to get out of it. See, you're thinking now. Exactly. Now you're you're taking bro science to the next level, um, which is why I'm selling we- the first pre workout that our podcast has ever created. Napalm. <laughs> it, it doesn't get you hyped. It just makes you shit a lot. <laughs> Look at any good pre workout. It makes your skin burn and you shit out your insides. <laughs> <laughs> you you too can get the uh, deployed in Afghanistan experience in 2023. Okay, I have I have one funny story to sh- share before we move on about this. So I have 
I'm a long-term gym nerd. Like I, I would never accuse myself of being like a gym bro. And it's, I feel like those are two very different things, right? But I've, mm. I've been a known gym rat for a very long time. It was like people always knew when I was back in the army after work, you know, assuming we get off at a human hour, Joe's going to be at the gym, right? And there's this one guy that I could not fucking stand who would always make fun of me for it. I have no idea why. I, I assume it has something to do with like a, a like confidence thing or something. I don't know. Yeah, the second J in JJ Kasabian is Joe Jim Kasabian. <laughs> That's right. Um, and he used to tell me, I can't wait until we deploy. I'm going to take so many supplements and get in shape. That's almost a direct quote. I don't re- it was like over a decade ago. I don't remember the exact, but I remember him saying, like, I'm going to take all these supplements and I'm going to get in shape. Like, yeah, it's just that easy, man. You just take like uh, all of this uh, like animal pack shit you buy at GNC, and then suddenly you're strong. <laughs> what about the whole? What about the whole middle ground where you're a fucking idiot? Um, yeah, taking the taking the petrol station rhino pills and then going working out while your heart explodes. Just getting juice to the fucking gills and gas station dick pills and like doing one deadlift and your back explodes. I mean, it would be very funny to like just absolutely blast train for six months and only build your calves. <laughs> <laughs> just monstrous calves and nothing else. Makes it super awkward to buy jeans. It reminds me, there was this account on Twitter. I don't know if they still exist, but they said that lifting anything other than legs was bourgeoisie. Um, oh yeah, and, uh, they. I mean, credit where credits due. The dude had a completely jacked legs, but. He looked like a preteen from the waist up. <laughs> it was it was oh, it was incredible. Um, but that that is the the, the donkey gym corner. Um, uh, um. Oh, before we uh go into the episode, uh, live show tickets uh, should be available. It is in Big Belly Comedy in Vauxhall on the twenty sixth of January. 2024 tickets are 15 pounds subject to booking fees as well um if you are traveling i've been informed by some of our international friends to maybe check out visa stuff because um it can be a bit tricky with the uk um if there is any updates in terms of ticket availability i will insert it here hello future tom and um yeah so uh, it's going to be a good night. There's going to be exclusive live show merch. And uh, yeah, you might even get to ask us a question from the Legion in person. And uh, I can promise everyone our, our our dumbest ideas will come to fruition. We have been plotting this for quite some time. <laughs> yes, every single time I've had an idea and said it to Joe, his reaction was just immediate enthusiasm. And I've just keep trying to plumb the depths of what is the stupidest thing we could do. Is this because Nate's on paternity leave and he doesn't check our group chat right now? So we are coming up with the worst ideas ever and he's not along to moderate us? <laughs> yeah, the uh, the lunatics are officially running the asylum. It's good stuff. Uh, I'm super excited. I, I hope to see everybody come out. I'm super nervous. I've never done a live show before. Um, and, you know, I hope that it is at least entertaining. Um, and maybe, you know, perhaps there's some laughs. There might, there might be some gas. There will be absolutely no yucks. Um, I already have what we're going to do planned out. Um, so I, I hope, uh, you know, if you can make it to the UK uh, and, you know, this goes well, we'll do more shows in continental Europe because uh, that is where I now live. Uh, so it is... Um, closer you know I'm, I'm not trying to convince people to come to Yerevan for a live show because we all understood how and how difficult that was going to be um but yeah hopefully this is successful and we can do more of them i i really look forward to it uh, and i'm i'm rambling because of how nervous i am about the whole thing uh, <laughs> so hope you enjoy it uh if not uh it's tom's fault um <laughs> <laughs> I will take all responsibility if this completely fails. Contractually, uh, the fine print is if anything goes wrong, I can legally blame Tom. Um, <laughs> so, Tom, we are coming off a two-part series uh, about the Besselon school siege, which was not the most lighthearted of topics to talk about. Um, yeah. So I figured that we would cushion the impact by talking about something we haven't talked about in a really long time. And that is just like... A dude who is cool as hell. <laughs> not not 9-11. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
How many kids die in this episode? Zero. Uh, okay, good. Possibly. Uh, unconfirmed. <laughs> I've seen enough death today. Uh, it is one of the few times in this show that one of us could actually say that. Um, so we haven't talked about a guy who is like legitimately just awesome in a very long time. Um, you know, not one of those guys that is awesome or funny or cool, and you have to pick through how many awful things that they also did uh, to get to that point. This, this is a solid dude rock. This moment. guy is one hundred percent dude rock across the board. Yeah. Okay. We're putting numbers on the board. We're we're Kobe Bryant right now. Uh, with no helicopters during this episode. Um, so I thought it would be a good time to talk about a guy who might be in contention for the title of coolest motherfucker we have ever talked about. And his name is Eugene Bullard, the world, one of the world's first black combat pilots, America's first ever black combat pilot. And good goddamn, was he so much more than that? Fuck yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited. Now, born Eugene... I can't fucking start right. Uh, <laughs> all right. Born Eugene James Bullard on October 9th, 1895 in the hyper-racist post-Civil War Columbus, Georgia. Um, oh, Jesus. Yeah, Eugene was not destined for an easy life. He was the seventh of ten kids. Um, his father, mm. William Bullard, was born as a slave and had been freed at the end of the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. So despite having a massive family and two very hardworking parents... They were, unlike most people we talk about on the show, actually good parents raising their family as one the best they could in, in, in the situation, mm-hmm. right? Like normally these like individuals we talk about have a fucked up family life, whether they end up being a complete monster or a cool person. They generally mm-hmm. come from a pretty fucked up family. Um, but as normal as a family life as one could have back then, for sure. And according to the book All Blood Runs Red by Phil Keith, Bullard was insulated the best that he could from well america like the 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 baseline racism that would exist in the late 18 and early 1900s uh you know the kkk is a thing uh segregation is a way of life his father was born a slave he's surrounded by people who literally remember where people like him could be owned as property like Uh, yeah and his yeah his family did the best they could to insulate him and give him a normal life but his parents could only do so much and his father very rightfully taught eugene that in the face of all of this racism coming from white people and you know every institution ever at the time in the country black people had to defend themselves and maintain their dignity and respect no matter what so one day while at work William, his father, got into an argument with his white boss over a paycheck issue, namely that he was literally fucking him over and only paying him about half of what he was worth mm. and what he was promised. They had an argument. William went home and quickly a all-white lynch mob followed him back to where he lived. Jesus. Now, they all survived, but um, you know the episode scared the ever-living shit out of everyone, as you would imagine. Mm. And that's when Eugene decided at 11 years old that this is not where he wanted to live. He ran away. Mm. Uh, He decided he was going to run away from his family and try to find a place that wasn't so insane, right? And he had actually tried to run away a few times before, not because he hated his family or anything, but he was always one of those guys that, even as a child, he's like, I want to see the world. I feel like I'm destined for greater things. Yeah. Did you ever run away as a kid, Joe? No, actually, never. (laughs) <laughs> I, I was not destined for greater things unfortunately if you if you still run away you're still in detroit yeah it's fair i mean i i suppose joining the army at 17 is an official government form of running away but i actually i have a very funny story so um <laughs> i grew up in the middle of nowhere um and <laughs> i don't know if i should tell the story but <laughs> um my brother uh was always running away like just like he's like oh and he would like go because there used to be like um a big i'm not gonna actually i'm not gonna say exactly where because uh that will dox uh my family but there was like a big kind of uh statue nearby like uh on a nearby road so he would like go up there and like sit up there for like 20 minutes or whatever and then come home my brother did that Uh, as well yeah yeah 
But uh, one day <laughs> he decided he was going to run away. So he packed up like a little suitcase that looked like a briefcase and decided he's going to leave. He got as far as the front gate with my whole family, like looking out the window. And as he got to the gate, he turned around and looked at him. And then the briefcase opened and all his toys fell out. It's <laughs> like something from a Simpsons episode. <laughs> my, my brother was a serial runaway for 20 minute kind of kid. Uh, yeah. I hate you, mom. I'm never coming back. And she'd be like, see you in a half hour, Mark. And then he, <laughs> see you when you get hungry. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Or when the sun goes down. And yeah, it's pretty much it was like a monthly occurrence. Uh, but Eugene Bullard would never come home. From the age of 11, his family would never see him again. Um, now, as an 11-year-old, uh, you know, wandering the streets in the early 1900s in rural Georgia, he ran into exactly the kind of strangers that you would imagine. People who are intensely racist, treated him like shit, tried to steal from him, literally attempted to enslave him as a child, beat him up. But... He kept a, he kept getting away. He fought people off, um, and finally, on the at the outskirts of Atlanta, he ran into a family of English Roma people called the Stanleys, who kind of just adopted him. Love that for him. This relationship certainly started as a child labor situation uh, because they put him to work uh, in the stables, like literally shoving mm. shoveling horse shit, but. The a, re- a relationship very, very close to a family developed over time. And he had never worked around horses before. And he got to see like a horse race. And he noticed that like, wow, small people race horses or like the jockeys or whatever. And he asked the Stanleys, like, can I race your horse in the upcoming uh, county horse racing championship? And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. Because, uh, you know, he's tiny at the time. He's a preteen <laughs> mm. uh and you know he's you know hasn't quite got turned into the size that he eventually would and he won uh so at the age of i believe it was 13 or 12 or 13 he became the county uh horse racing champion mm. um now it was during this time living and working with the stanleys that um he learned a lot about europe because why else would he his dad would occasionally tell him about france uh, but that was about it. And this, the Stanleys told Eugene that American racism confused them deeply because that kind of thing mm. simply didn't happen where they're from. Now, imagine, if you will, this mi- image. A Roma family from England is telling someone in the United States, like, holy shit, America's fucked up. <laughs> yeah like it's a real understatement at this time yeah. uh and they told him you should go to england you'll be happier there um like <laughs> yeah like you get to england at this stage everyone's dying of tuberculosis lauding them on the streets you know it's a good time yeah and i mean like we've talked about this endlessly on the show here never once are we going to say that Europe was not or is not racist? But oh god! But American, <laughs> yeah. but American racism in the early 1900s just hits different. Yeah, it's kind of switched now. Whereas, like, you go to like certain parts of Europe, the racism is just—it's so much different than that. Like, yeah, hundred percent. The U.S. has now been uh, consumed by weird, polite evangelical racism, and also down like right. Uh, outright like out supremacy whereas like mm-hmm. you go to Italy as a black person ask any black person who's gone to Italy it hits different also it's like you can transplant any kind of ideas of racism in the US to just Roma people in the in Europe yeah. ask any regular European person oh what do you think of Roma you're gonna hear some really really weird things yeah I will say that um, whenever a European person tells me that like America's racist I was like Glass houses, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I, I'm not defending institutional racism. Of course I'm not. But like, I got to clip. I got to clip. Like, it's, it's fucking rich, guys. Like, uh, and like, don't get me wrong. I, I have fond feelings for my home country. I have fond feelings for Europe. But we're both pretty fucked up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're you're getting too kebab pilled now. You've you've eaten too much capsulon. You're being too uh, kind towards Europe. There's no such thing as too much capsulon. Okay. Um, 
Now, uh, so yeah, like he's hanging out with this Roma family, and they're like, "You should go to England. Uh, that they will treat you better there." And so, like, Eugene asked them, "Like, well, obviously, you're from England. You'll be going back. Um, take me with you." And they told him that they weren't planning on going back for several months because, like, you know, again, it's it's a boat trip. It takes a long time. They're not going to go to the U.S. for a couple weeks and whatnot. They're making good money, and you know, like five to six months, something like that. They'll head back. But they gave him a good little tip because you know, a, a passage, a, a ticket for passage is very expensive. Like you could just stow away like we did. Uh, so he's like, well, there's a ship leaving for Hamburg, Germany. That's going to make a stop in Scotland. So you could stow away, get off in Scotland and hitchhike your way into London, uh, which is where they wanted to go. And so he was like, fuck, yeah, let's go. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, so this teenage boy stowed away in a ship uh, and uh, and made his way to Scotland and then hitchhiked and walked his way down to London. Damn, that that, that is a journey in and of itself. Yeah. And it's funny, that's a footnote in this story. Yeah, uh, if I was the same age, uh, I'm pretty sure I was playing Pokemon Blue. Uh, I would have just died. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whole world's gone soft. Kids these days don't want to walk the entire length of the UK. Yeah, kids these days don't even have to stow themselves away in a freighter. What the fuck? Yeah, th- these are the things we have lost over time. You don't know how to be a stowaway. Also, it's like really interesting at this time, like particularly in the South, that like he didn't end up with some sort of traveling carnival group. Like that, like people make a joke about that, like running away to the circus, circus. But like from my other show and doing research for it, that was so common. This is where I get to say, Tom, hold the thought. Oh fuck <laughs> off! <laughs> now, once we're doing the we're doing the DBZ fusion dance, except it's for the dumbest shit possible. For a 1900s carnival where everybody is dysentery, and we're changing our collective name to Toe. Oh God. <laughs> now, once in London, he had a life that could very easily be described as unique. Mm. Once there, I mean, he's a teenager. He has no real skills to speak of other than like he knows how to do manual labor because he shoveled horse shit for a while. Uh, yeah. But he is a guy that would never turn down anything. He's also very a quick learner. So he fell into a troop of street performers. Um now, I'm not going to say the name of the street performers because it is 100% a racial slur in modern times. Oh, God. I, I think I know what it is. <laughs> um, it's very easy to look up if you want to go do it. I The words are not leaving my mouth. Um, Just some fucking Fagan-esque character with his troop of rambunctious kids. It, it was a, a, a child circus, effectively, ran by someone named Bell Davis. Uh, it was very well known. Now, within that troupe, he worked as a slapstick performer and a tumbler, which I have to say he probably learned on the job. Uh, like, all right, Eugene, I'm going to hit you really fucking hard and you're going to fall down and everybody's going to laugh. <laughs> this is your job now. Uh, he also acted as a target for throwing games to be like dropped into the big bucket of water. Um, <laughs> and I really hope it was a lot like, because uh, like I've been to carnivals and shit. And uh, I don't know how it was back in the day, but in the carnivals I went to, the guy that was inside the dunk tank would like shit talk you uh, as you. Th- hey, you fucking piece of shit. You got one eye or something. Yeah. And like you, you'd throw the ball and you'd miss. He'd make fun of you for throwing and you know, stuff like that. So I, I would like to assume he was just trash talking British people the whole time. And it's, it, it's in Michigan. So there's definitely he just looks like Iggy Pop and is like drinking a beer. Yeah. Almost everybody going into these carnivals that I went to looked like Kid Rock. Um, yeah. <laughs> bow with the bow, but dang, dang, come on, hit me. God, I fucking hate that guy so much. There's a reason why the place that he's from is nicknamed the, the Wasteland. Uh, yeah, but also Kid Rock's stolen working class valor because he grew up as a millionaire's kid. Yep, yep, sure did. Most of them do, to be fair. Mm, yeah. Now, eventually, he ran into a guy named Aaron Lister Brown, better known as the Dixie Kid. Uh, a fellow African-American in London. Now, Brown was from Missouri, unfortunately, and uh, he had previously been the welterweight boxing champion of the United States, but had achieved that title in such a weird, fucked-up way, we do have to talk about it. 
1904, Brown took on the champion Barbados Joe Wilcott, so nicknamed because he was from Barbados, and it was 1904, and creative nicknames had not yet been invented. Yeah, they weren't they weren't listening to Rihanna yet. I, the only thing I could think of with his nickname was Barbados Slim from Futurama. <laughs> uh, that's all I got. Yeah. So Brown and Walcott were in the eleventh round, and Brown was clearly fading because uh, he had slacked off in the cardio department, which we all can empathize with. When suddenly the match's ref, a guy named Duck Sullivan, uh, because the 1900s were an awesome time for names. Uh, disqualified Walcott for seemingly no reason, then awarded uh, Brown the championship, which immediately had to be overturned because I found out that the the ref had bet on Brown to win. <laughs> yeah, like like I am very fascinated with this era of boxing, and it's just like yeah, disqualification is insane in and of itself because the only way to end the match usually is like one person literally cannot fight anymore. Yeah, and. Uh, <laughs> It's very funny. People are like, boxing was so corrupt back then. Like, you should see it now. Um, but yeah, yeah, he uh, he could the the ref threw the match for him. He just takes off uh, his flat cap and he has like Don King hair. <laughs> Maybe Duck Walcott also murdered two people. Wait, what? Yeah, you didn't know that. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don King's a fucking murderer. <laughs> what? He w- went to prison and everything. I think one of them was found to be self defense. Uh, okay, we're di- we're diverting. <laughs> I la- Don King, uh, if I can spell it right, uh, King murder. Let's. 1954. He shot a man in the back after spotting him trying to rob one of his gambling houses. And what the fuck? Like, <laughs> but like this is like some shit. Like that fucking you could get away with in the 50s. Is like, oh yeah, I just shot a dude in the back. It's like you know. Um, in the 1950s or in a stand-your-ground state, either or. Yeah, it's either Florida or the 1950s, which, you know, yep. Florida slowly careening back towards the 1950s. Yeah, they're doing their best. Um, ju- uh, Just as a point of interest, Don King's controversy section on Wikipedia is longer than literally anything else. That's all good. Now, Brown never won another title, but continuously told everybody that he was a former champion which I suppose is technically true. And that is when Eugene ran into him when he was working as a boxing promoter and trainer in London. And he would pick up like strong looking kids off the street and be like, hey kid, you want to get punched in the face for money? (laughs) Which in London is the best case scenario when someone is talking to children on the street. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Either you become like an Oliver Twist situation or you get the uh, the other one, which is not great. And uh, at this point, Eugene had grown up pretty fucking big. Uh, he looked a lot like his dad, who was a brick shithouse. Uh, so he looked like a great candidate to get, you know, to, to, to train to become a boxer. And he fought around the London area going completely undefeated, ending pretty much all of his fights and knockouts. Uh, so Brown began organizing fights overseas, but in particular Paris. Yeah, the, uh, the um, early twentieth uh, century English diet is probably very conducive to this because it's like ninety percent carbs. Hell yeah, I'm jealous that he could get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so once in Paris, not only did Eugene win literally all of his fights, but he also fell in love with France and decided, "Fuck England, I'm not going back." Mm. Eugene ran into not only French people, but also fellow Americans who had moved to France. Much more, they, he found them all much friendlier, much more welcoming, and specifically not racist to him as he saw racism. Um, now, obviously, like we said, Europe is racist. Europe back then was racist, but the type of racism that Eugene was used to simply didn't exist. And, uh, you know, even running into other Americans that would suddenly treat white Americans that would treat him as his as their equal on the streets of Paris was like mind blowing to him. But this is this is like why like people like James Baldwin and like so many African American soldiers after World War Two were like, I'm just staying in France. Fuck this. Yep. Like why would I why yep. would I go back to a country that doesn't even see me as human where I can at least get a modicum of a, of respect in Paris. And it's also like Paris at this time was essentially just the hub for people who 
couldn't really live where they were born. Like people like Oscar Wilde, eventually you'd have like Samuel Beckett, like lots of poets and stuff. And it's just like, yeah, like if you had the choice between being in fucking bumfuck nowhere in America or being in Paris. This is again where I get to say, hold that thought because Eugene would eventually meet pretty much all of those people. Fuck yeah. We're smoking (laughs) opium. We're doing like early, you know, like weird drugs that have strange names. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And Eugene wrote, quote, it seems to me that French democracy influenced the minds of both black and white Americans and helped us all to act like brothers. And he did great in France. He fucking thrived. He learned French, became a local boxing champion, though, you know, uh, he met uh, he met people, like made friends, white, black, didn't matter. It, it was like absolutely a revelatory moment for him. But if you've been paying attention to the date... You know what's coming next. Oh, uh, before that happens, I just want to point out, this dude was definitely fucking, like, you You are an ex- you are exotic because you're American, he's fucking jacked, he's a great boxer, like- He's a champion, he has money. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he, he, he's yeah. like rocking around like, like Don King and like fucking mink furs. Almost certainly, uh, minus the murder charge, because we should point out, Don King murdered a guy. Yeah. He's there fucking <laughs> smoking opium and taking laudanum with Oscar Wilde, you know, he's hanging around with, like, poets and, you know, dancers from the crazy horse, you know, fuck yeah, I love this for him. Yeah, the, this is, and, like, this will definitely paint his experience later on, but, like, he, for the first time in his life, he's allowed to take part in culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, uh, culture that is not his own. Yeah specifically uh because that is as you can imagine completely foreign to him mm-hmm. but if you've been paying attention to the date you know what comes next it's 1914 baby it's time for the world to explode in world war one oh, some dude gets got while he's tra- taking an open car ride around the city you know one 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 night in sarajevo is a very different meaning <laughs> i was about to say thankfully that would never happen to another world leader <laughs> <laughs> Now, Eugene was completely devoted to France, to his adopted country, and immediately ran down to the French Foreign Legion Recruitment Center in Paris and enlisted. Uh, Because, well, he wasn't a citizen, so, like, this was his only option. Um, And he was assigned to what was called the Marching Regiment of the Foreign Legion, which was kind of a composite unit made up of other units in the Foreign Legion. Um, Like we've talked about on this show before, the French military treated black and white soldiers, assuming there's a big asterisk here, if you can see my fingers. You can't, because this is an audio medium, but Tom can. Mm-hmm. Assuming it was a unit from the Metropole. Uh, okay. Colonial units were much different. Yeah. Now, he was uh, working side by side with, uh, side by side with uh, white people, black people, uh, people from North America, mm-hmm. anybody in the French Foreign Legion, it did not matter. He gets reassigned now, a if- new name. He's called Francois Escargot. Actually, they did not assign him a new name. He took one. Ooh. Um, now, he decided to. he would show his dedication to France by only changing his middle name. <laughs> <laughs> now, he changed his middle name from James to Jacques and would only go by... Now, he did treat that like it was his first name. He would introduce people... He would introduce himself to people as Jacques. But he, he didn't go all the way. Though, I guess Eugene still kind of works, right? I don't know. Um... But yeah, he would go by Jacques after that. Um, Pretty much as soon as he was done with training and given a machine gun because he'd work as a machine gunner, Eugene took took a a, a grand tour of some of the worst places in human history to ever be a soldier. Oh, God. Because he was immediately shoved out into the Somme. Oh, (laughs) yeah. But he did great. Um, He's probably the only person that did great in the Somme. Pretty much, yeah. He seemed to have a f- fine time. Um, he was there punching dudes. He was wearing like the power fists from Fallout. <laughs> just drop. You just he- hear a parachute coming down and just dudes flying in the air as this large African-American champion boxer just punching people to death. Well, I-, I would like to think he's going over the top wearing foam Hulk hands. <laughs> <laughs> we need to weaponize Hulk hands. Put like put barbed wire on them and run an electrical current through, so you're stabbing and punching and shocking. 
Uh, as Mo from The Simpsons says, they call that the stinger. You can't <laughs> use that anymore. Uh, <laughs> Say some wise guys dissing your French Legion unit. You get him one of these. Now, a- as he was running through no man's land, ethering motherfuckers with Hulk hands, uh, he did occasionally you know, work as a message runner, as is common during the war. Um, and again, as was common during the war, pretty much every battle he took part in, half of his unit was completely obliterated. Uh, he managed to do okay. He didn't get wounded for the first time into the Second Battle of Champagne in 1915. Mm. And we can call it the Second Battle of Champagne because it was in the Champagne region of France. Mm. Um, eventually, he was transferred over to the regular French army, joining the 170th Infantry Regiment, who were nicknamed the Swallows of Death. And uh, earning Eugene his nickname, the Black Swallow of Death. The, once which again, is pretty fucking sick. Once again, this was a great time for nicknames. You know, Black Swallow of Death goes so hard. Chris Coyle could fucking never rest in piss, bitch. <laughs> then, while fighting at Verdun, because again, he has to go to the for worst places sake. on earth. <laughs> He was running a message from one position to another when an artillery shell exploded right next to him. He was plastered from head to toe with shrapnel, and it nearly killed him because it severed his femoral artery. But he was actually so dehydrated and got first aid quick enough that he did not bleed to death. But this wound was bad enough to take him off the front line permanently, and the French military gave him a war cross for his service. Mm. Now, as he was recovering in the hospital, because, again, he was a hair away from dying. That did not mean that Eugene was done. It's fucking him and Hercule Poirot beside him. <laughs> hey, I see you are injured. I can tell you have a dark past. We regret to inform you. We could not salvage your Hulk hands. No! But one more thing. We have got you Follett power fists. <laughs> the French medic ran up to him, saw his femoral artery severed by artillery, and just shoved a whole cigarette into it. I mean, look, it's World War One. The medicine wasn't much better than that. Don't worry, it's good news. That's all That's all bad blood. We gotta get the bad blood out of here. Yeah, we're bringing back humors. Humors are fun again. Yeah. Now, just because the French army and the Foreign Legion decided that he had been wounded too badly to return to duty did not mean Eugene was done killing Germans in the name of the French Republic, because that turned out to be his favorite pastime. That's, it's it's also just Emmanuel wet, Macron's fucking wet dream. <laughs> While recovering from his wounds in the hospital, he bet his friend $2,000 or $60,000 in, in today bucks that he could go and enlist in the French Air Force. Mind you, this man did not graduate from school. He had about a fifth grade education. He dropped out of elementary school and was roughly literate, most of which he taught himself. Now, this man with only a loose grasp and being able to read and write is like, I could fly a fucking plane. And his friend was, you know, reasonably suspicious at this because remember, planes were about 10 years old, give or take. <laughs> They're new. <laughs> And someone slapped a gun on them for the first time like three weeks ago. It's like putting a fucking putting a fucking Glock on a paper airplane. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so his friend took the deal. Um, now, Eugene, on its surface, probably was not going to be able to get in the French Air Force. However, he was good at he was good at schmoozing, right? Which will become important later on as well. He made friends with an officer that happened to be in the French Air Force in the hospital who was also recovering from being injured. And after playing cards, drinking together, and whatnot, the officer promised to introduce him to someone he knew in recruitment. And by October of 1916, it worked, and he began his training. Did he get his 60K? No, of course oh, not. Fuck Nobody me. has that fucking money. <laughs> Folks, hey. Especially not, a, not, not another wounded French private hospital. <laughs> and in 1917, he was awarded his pilot's wings. While partying in Paris with his friends, Eugene said, quote, By midnight, every American in Paris knew that an American Negro by the name of Eugene Bullard, born in Georgia, had obtained the first military pilot's license given to someone like him. Fuck yeah. This dude rocks so much. Like, I don't think we've had as much of a dude's rock moment since Adrian DeWeert, and he was a fucking freak. This guy is like... Yeah, he was a psycho. <laughs> this guy is unequivocally dude's rock. It gets better. Honestly, this dude only keeps rock until he dies. Fuck yes. 
He was enlisted to the ranks of the Lafayette Flying Corps, a unit made up of American volunteers flying with the French Air Force, because the U.S. had not yet entered the war. Mm. It was, of course, named for the Marquis de Lafayette, the hero of the American Revolution, and a Frenchman. Mm. Now, this shouldn't be confused with another group of American volunteers flying for France called the Lafayette Escadrille which Eugene originally tried to join, but found that recruitment was closed, not because of any racist reasons, but because so many fucking Americans were trying to join the famed Lafayette Escadrille. But he joined the French Air Force nonetheless. And this made Eugene America's first ever black combat pilot. Uh, He was not the first ever period, but he was one of the first five in the world. This dude is so fucking cool. Like Some people put it at one of the first three. The first ever is generally considered a black man who flew for the Ottoman Empire, and I have a hard time standing that. But <laughs> I get it. It's fine. The Ottomans are probably like he's he's not even black. He's just Turkish. <laughs> uh, now he flew a Spad Seven, which is a biplane made out of wood and canvas, but was renowned for its reliability as a stable gun platform, which is about as much as you could hope for for a. Canvas and wood fighter plane in 1917. I'm probably wearing jeans right now that way more than this plane. <laughs> now remember, they're flying these planes and shooting each other out of the air with less technology than I'm using to vape right now. <laughs> he painted his personal insignia on the side of the plane, which is a heart with a dagger stabbed through it and the slogan, all blood runs red underneath oh, of it. Oh man, like, like this dude is so fucking cool like imagine how late he got after the war like he is oh you have no idea we're not there yet oh god yes (laughs) like and it's not all about sex but it's like this dude is just like he walks into any room any single room after the war he is the coolest person he has the best stories and they're all true like if you met this guy in a bar and he told you about the past 10 years of his life you would think this guy is full of shit and just look at a picture of him like oh, he's fucking be a- hot as hell <laughs> like that like there is a, a fu- this dude could have been a model and he was <sighs> dude's rock dude's rock <laughs> oh by the way he flew all of his missions accompanied by a pet monkey named jimmy that part's important what? yeah yeah he had a pet monkey named jimmy that flew uh, wingman for him. Like, was, was, was the monkey... Just strapped... Was the monkey... Just strapped it to the passenger seat. Was the monkey doing air nav or something? I assume so. I mean, I, just imagine how terrified the fucking monkey was just shrieking at the top of his little monkey lungs. No, what if the monkey just had dual-wielding pistols? Because, like, you're flying in shit made out of, like, plywood and canvas. Like, you can easily shoot down a plane with a single 9 millimeter bullet. The monkey's going to throw shit at a passing plane and take it down. Now, within a few months, he claimed two aerial victories over German pilots, though history tends to be a little gray about this. For a pilot to be documented as shooting down an enemy plane, it needs to be witnessed by someone else in order to be confirmed. Kind of like, you know, the concept of a, quote, confirmed kill. Only one of his victories was witnessed by someone else, and the other... Uh, is Eugene is the main source for it, but you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to give it to him anyway. Mm. If you want to, if you want to be a dick about it, give one to Eugene and the other one to Jimmy split it straight down the middle. Yeah, Equal credit. Yeah. His most well-known and most reported on victory in November of that same year near Metz, uh, his unit was fighting around 10 German aircraft in a massive dogfight that led to one of the Germans chasing after him, riddling his bullet, his plane with over a hundred bullets and then him spinning around and returning the favor. They both effectively shot the, each other down. Um, now Eugene crashed just inside friendly lines uh, and the, nobody is sure where the, the enemy crashed into or if he survived. Eugene was astonished at just how good the other pilot was. And of course impressed with himself that he was able to take such a guy down. And that is when his commander told him that he was lucky to be alive. Like the, how how can you be flying in the equivalent of Mr. Burns Spruce Moose take a hundred bullets in a plane that probably has this turning circle of a football field? Oh, I should point out both him and Jimmy were unwounded. What? Like <laughs> they they simply they simply do not make men like this anymore, people. Not at all. 
so his commander, when he made it back to the, the, the base, told him that he was lucky to be alive. That pilot was what was called the part of the German Flying Circus, a nickname given to the most elite unit of the Luftwaffe, commanded personally by Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron. Jesus Christ. He, like, did Jimmy, did Jimmy get a medal for this? We can only hope. We assume so. Maybe he had he had tiny monkey version medals for his tiny monkey dress uniform. Yeah, I want to see the I want to see Jimmy in his dress uniform as well. There is a picture of Eugene standing outside of his plane holding Jimmy on his arm. I'm looking this up um, right now. <laughs> oh my god, this is I wasn't lying about Jimmy. People, he's not lying about Jimmy. Jimmy is real. Now after this. The U.S. finally joined World War One, so Eugene rushed over to join the ranks of the U.S. Air Service because despite everything that happened, he still saw himself as an American. He was also a trained pilot, damn near an ace, and was like, I'm here to, I'm here to fucking serve. He was rejected because black people couldn't be pilots. Now, that's actually more fucked up than that. His exploits were well known in France. Not only was he a champion boxer and something of a minor celebrity before this, he was a celebrity in France for what he had done so far. He was a fucking war hero. Mm. And according to the NAACP in the United States, the U.S. purposefully censored any stories coming from France about Eugene specifically, worried about how it could harm, quote-unquote, race relations in the U.S. if people learned that a black man could fly a plane. Oh, I'm so tired, Joe. and, And even wider than that, the U.S. censored all stories about black soldiers fighting uh, it for France because how it would make how it, it would make uh, like race relations in the U.S. about like black people might start thinking they're equal to white people. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about we've talked more uh, uh, about that on other episodes multiple times. But yeah, deeply fucked up. Now, after being rejected by the U.S. Air Service, he brushed it off and returned to his position with the French Air Force. The way he looked at it is none of it mattered because he's still going to be flying and he's still going to be killing Germans, which, again, were his two favorite hobbies at this point. Then he was fired from the French Air Force and sent to a non-combat role with the French Army. Now, why that happened, nobody's ever been able to fully nail down, including Eugene. The best Eugene could come up with is that he had an argument with a racist officer within the French Air Force or possibly the French Army, depending on who's telling the story. And the American liaison to the French Air Force used that as a way to muscle the French into firing him. However, Eugene's comrades paint a much different picture. He did have an argument with a French officer, but it ended with Eugene punching him in the goddamn face, hence why he was fired. Now, the French officer was, of course, racist, but Eugene was not an officer. Back then, you could be a pilot and be an enlisted man. Mm-hmm. So he punched... Uh, the Most likely, what the French saw was simply and enlisted in punching an officer in the face, which is generally frowned upon. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'd like to, uh, instead of ACAB, it's ACOB, all commissioned officers are bastards. Don't disagree. Um, there was still another version of events that exists between Eugene and his friends. They were in Paris waiting for a train when an officer previously unknown to Eugene, who was wearing the uniform of France's colonial corps, uh, therefore being an officer within their colonial military, called Eugene over to him and launched into a racist tirade, the likes of which Eugene had not experienced since he lived in the United States. Knowing this kind of thing is just not something that happened within the French military, at least to his experience. Eugene began yelling back. But in this version, he doesn't punch him. Eventually, a French major in the French army who knew Eugene intervened, telling the other officer to fuck off and insisting Eugene he would have his back if anything official came from this argument. And he clearly didn't or didn't have enough pull. Mm-hmm. And Eugene was fired. Mm-hmm. Whatever the case, we, we truly have no idea. Eugene remained behind a desk until the end of World War I, though he had no intention on returning to the United States. Since he was wounded while serving in the French Foreign Legion, he was given citizenship under a rule called French by spilled blood, which is actually the exact same way my grandfather obtained French citizenship. <laughs> it comes back to Joe's granddad. If you're looking for information for this wanted wanted criminal, please uh, submit it to LL, llbdmerch at gmail.com. <laughs> you're probably better off contacting Interpol. Um, 
Now, so with his new shiny French citizenship in hand, he stayed in France, in Paris, and opened a fucking nightclub and a bar. He married a French woman and had two kids, though she eventually abandoned him and their kids, but whatever. He was never really happy doing normal things, so he started a jazz band, went on a world tour, and while he was on, while he was on tour with his jazz band, he decided, fuck it, I'm going to box again. Went undefeated again while on jazz tour, while like touring with his jazz band, and then you know, returned to France where he was again a celebrity, as was his club. Like now, this had a this had a lot to do with the fact that because of who he was, he was able to secure a license from the Paris municipality, allowing his club to stay open later than any other club in the city. Oh, this guy rules! Like he's fucking, he's like put. Undefeated in boxing, he's jamming with fucking Django Reinhardt. You know he owns the <laughs> best club in town. Like, no one. Like, put it simply this way: this guy is in competition to being probably one of the coolest people who've ever lived. Hundred percent. I have no debates there. And while his so his club became famous for being open all night, and uh, it made it incredibly popular, and soon. It became favorites for people like Langston Hughes, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Josephine Baker, and Ernest Hemingway. Oh, you got all of which he was friends with. This dude is so cool. Ernest Hemingway liked him so much. If you've ever read uh, his first novel ever, The Sun Also Rises, he has an entire character based on Eugene in that novel. Fuck yeah. (laughs) He also started an athletic club, training and promoting boxers, all of whom became champions. (laughs) He's a businessman, people. He's an entrepreneur. He became fabulously wealthy, incredibly famous, and the people of Paris fucking loved him. Now, by the late 1930s, oh God. not a great time period, I know, things are once again getting spicy in Europe as the Nazis rose to power in Germany and began threatening everybody around them. That is when the French government made contact with Eugene. Not only was he something of a well-known national hero, Eugene had picked up the German language along the way. So, the French intelligence service recruited Eugene to be a fucking spy. (laughs) You know, like... (laughs) I fucking love this guy so much. Ian Fleming couldn't have written this. Like, this guy... This this is why we need a black bond. Because... It's just Eugene Bullitt. Yeah, like, someone make a movie about this guy. Make a movie of this guy, give the role to Idris Elba... Sit back and watch money come out. Yeah, like, the, uh, man, like, I know there is, like, some adaptations of his life, like the movie Red Tails or whatever about the Tuskegee Airmen, but, like, just make a movie about this guy. I do have to point out that Red Tails is about World War Two. Yeah, but, like, yeah, <laughs> I know, I know, I know, but there is, like, some inspiration taken from his life, but, like, literally... Make a movie like there's so like get Scorsese to make a fucking four hour movie about this guy. Exactly. Or give me an HBO miniseries. Just like dump money into it like it's a Game of Thrones spinoff. Now, Eugene's mission was to buddy up to the German guests of his club, of which there was a lot, and try to figure out what they were up to. Now, he ended up being perfect for this as the Germans who would be plotting this kind of shit were Nazi sympathizers and believers. They couldn't believe a lowly black man could be smart enough or capable enough to be a spy. Furthermore, so like he had two ways he would play this. He would butter them up with drinks and then talk to them and they would let things slip about their mission in France. Or he would, you know, betting on their ignorance and racism towards him and their assumption that he could not possibly be smart enough to speak German, he would simply hang around and listen in their conversations and then report them to the French intelligence agency. And because of his actions, the French were able to arrest at least a dozen fucking spies based on Eugene's actions. (laughs) This guy fucking rocks so much. Yeah. Unfortunately, as we all know, the Nazis would eventually invade France on May 10th, 1940, and Eugene, now in his 40s, pretty badly mangled from, you know, all of his wounds and plane crashes, immediately ran back down to the French army recruiting office. like, put me back in, coach. I'm ready to fucking go. And the French are just like, sure, man. Fuck it. And he was off to join the 51st Infantry Division as a machine gunner all over again. What a king. 
Now, fighting alongside his French comrades, Eugene was wounded a further two more times and the country fell while he was recovering in a hospital. Several of his friends warned him that he needed to get the fuck out of France now that the Nazis were going to take over. And they generally knew what Nazis were all about when it came to, you know, racial ideology. Though Eugene was determined to stay in France and join the fucking French resistance, but everyone, to include the Red Cross, was like, you need to get the fuck out, dude. You're not only black, you're an American citizen. You need to leave. Also, he's like, he is like one of the most famous fucking war heroes and like is like very popular in like you know the Paris social scene like he and and a spy and a spy like you know like dude you can't stay they will execute you so fast you will be the first one they're looking for and sir we we can't find your hulk hands things are hopeless you know the only reason why France fell is because Eugene couldn't find his hulk hands yeah, exactly now facing pressure from his friends family and the Red Cross he finally agreed and workers from the Red Cross smuggled him out of the country through Spain and into Portugal. Should have sent him after Franco. <laughs> right? Hulk, Hulk punch him so hard in the face, his stupid face his stupid head just explodes into confetti. Yeah, look, you know, usually on this show we're not uh, fans of punching down, but in that case we are. <laughs> well, to be fair, when Eugene's involved, he has to punch down everybody because he's cooler than anybody who's ever existed. Uh. Now... Once in Portugal, he boarded a ship and went back to the U.S. for the first time since he'd run away and landed in Manhattan. Now, once back in the U.S., he immediately became depressed, as one does. Um, He had to leave everything behind in France, including all of his money. And because of his status in the U.S., that being a unemployed black man, there was no opportunities for him, and he was a complete and total unknown. When the U.S. entered World War II, he once again tried to volunteer for his for service, but refused to be relegated to the role of manual labor, which is the role that most black soldiers would play mm. during the war. And he flatly refused to fight in a segregated unit. He refused to do manual labor. He's like, I'm a goddamn war hero, and I've killed more Germans than any of you. Like, put me at the front. And it didn't work. So he had to work odd jobs to make ends meet, like a security guard and a longshoreman. Um, and, you know, looking around, seeing how fucked up the U.S. was, he took up the banner of the civil rights movement and an anti-racist street fighter. Fuck yeah. This, this <laughs> guy, this guy, like, can't keep a good man down. One day in 1949, he was attending a concert held by Paul Robeson. He was a pretty well-known civil rights activist in uh, New York. And when a racist mob confronted the concert goers, mainly members of the American Legion and the local chapter of the Veterans of Foreign Wars, who saw the entire civil rights movement as communist agents looking to overthrow the United States. Now, specifically in the case of Robeson, they gathered at his concert, well, because he's a civil rights activist, but also because he had just attended the World Peace Conference in Paris, which was sponsored by the Soviet Union. He, now, when he was there, he gave a very innocent speech in the grand scheme of things, saying, quote, we in America do not forget that it was the backs of the white workers from Europe and the backs of millions of blacks that the wealth of America was built. And we are resolved to share it equally. We reject any hysterical raving that urges us to make war on anyone. Our will to fight for peace is strong, and we shall support peace and friendship amongst all nations with Soviet Russia and the People's Republics. However, what was reported in the Associated Press was completely different and a completely made-up version of that same speech, saying the following, quote, We colonial peoples have contributed to the building of the United States and are determined to share its wealth. We denounce the policy of the United States government, which is similar to Hitler and Goebbels. It is unthinkable that the American Negroes would go to war on behalf of those who have oppressed us for generations against the Soviet Union, which in one generation has lifted our people to full human dignity. He didn't say any of that shit. So when the whole... So when the hordes of shitty drunk Uncle Racist showed up to beat the shit of concert goers, Eugene was one of the first people to rush to the attendees' defense. Then the cops showed up, joined in the side of the racists, and ended up beating the living shit out of Eugene. Cops showing up and siding with the racists? I, well, I wouldn't believe they would never. that. Yeah, seems so unlike them. The assault on Eugene was caught on camera and ended up being part of the 1970s Sidney Poitier narrated documentary, The Tallest Tree in Our Forest. 
Even when the man is getting his ass kicked, he ends up in a movie. I, I did not expect. Narrated by Sidney Poitier. I didn't. <laughs> I did not think Sidney Poitier was gonna show up in this fucking episode. Surprise, motherfucker! I ne like I never know what's gonna happen in these. <laughs> Eugene recovered from the beating, but he saw himself as a foreigner in the United States, the country of his birth, only underlined by the constant stream of racism that he had to deal with. And at one point, he nearly beat the shit out of a bus driver who demanded that he sit in the back of a bus. That ended up being the final straw, and he returned to Paris. His club had been destroyed during World War II by the Nazis. Mm -hmm. Because they knew a spy owned it. <laughs> uh, but however, the French government immediately gave him restitution to rebuild. Fuck yeah. And they paid uh, all of the back years in military pension, disability, everything. They showered him with like a dozen awards. He was invited by President Charles de Gaulle to relight the eternal fl flame at the Arc de Triomphe, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and was made a Knight of the Legion of Honor. Though his children eventually moved to the U.S. for school and whatnot, so he did return to the United States later in life to be with his kids, and he lived in New York. And in October 12th, 1961, Eugene Jacques Bullard died of stomach cancer. He was buried with full military honors at the French War Veterans Section at the Flushing Cemetery in New York City in the Borough of Queens, where his grave still is today. Despite having been given some of the highest awards of the French Republic, Eugene had been given nothing by the United States, and he would have to wait until 1992, 30 years after his death and 77 years after originally being rejected by the U.S. Air Service, for the U.S. Air Force to honor him in a single way, posthumously com commissioning him as an officer and a pilot. Like, you know... This dude is like he's so cool. He's such a like a a hero. And like the the sad thing is that like this story just ends in indignity and like just like you know humiliation. Like eventually he got honored for what he did, but like my fucking god, like what what a different life he would have led until his end if he had just stayed in France. Yeah. But this dude and fucking like, rules. I mean, it's kind of similar to the other soldier of this era that we talked about, uh, Henry Johnson, nicknamed the Black Death. Uh, he was an, a black American soldier who was seconded to the French army during World War I. Fucking hero. And he, like, he, he died so unknown that people aren't even sure of what happened to him exactly. Um, and like, uh, the, Eugene Bullard is just, he's such a character. Uh, that it almost seems fake, but it's not. Um, he is absolutely the type of guy that you'd want to lionize. Um, yeah. But he was simply born with the wrong skin color in the United States. If if he was born a white man, he would be championed the same way like the fucking Red Baron is. Yeah. In some aspects. Like, yeah. like an over-the-top colorful character. Obviously, the Red Baron was 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 known for you know, being one of the best pilots in World War One. But, like, he is such a unique guy, an over-the-top flamboyant club owner, boxing champion, all this other shit, that there would be fucking... There'd be a jet named after yeah. him already, yeah. at minimum. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I think it's, it, it, you know, not to blow smoke up our own asses, but, like, I think, like, stuff like this is important because it acts as, like, a bulwark against, you know, the indignity of history that, like, this is... You know, this guy deserves to be remembered and deserved to be remembered for the fullness of his life and like everything he did not just the fact you know he was a war hero or that sort of thing but like his whole story is so important yeah he's uh like going back to how, what his dad told him like no matter what you need to defend your dignity your your own honor and your own respect he spent his entire fucking life doing exactly that mm -hmm. dude's rock <laughs> dude's rock dude's fucking rock now tom we do a thing on the show called Questions from the Legion. And if you'd like to ask us a question from the Legion, you can uh, donate to the show, ask us on Patreon, you can ask us on our community Discord, you can load it into a canvas and wood biplane and fly it into the greater London area. And <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't recommend doing that. <laughs> I think that's a really bad idea. Like, for anyone who doesn't know, the venue that we have chosen for the live show is right beside MI6 headquarters, so please, so please don't do that. 
<laughs> we are we are not escaping the MI6 allegations. Uh, and we will answer your question. In fact, write your letter, uh, write your question from the Legion in ciphertext, mail it to MI6. They will decode it and they will give it to us. Um, and we will answer it on the show. Uh, today's question from the Legion comes to us from our Discord. If a disease or a medical condition is ever named after you, what symptoms would you like it to have? I don't know, like hypergonadism. Just give him some. Like if someone was like, "God damn, he's got a mean case." The Toms, uh, uh, monstrously large calves, just abnormally large calves. I I want something visible. Like I don't want flu-like symptoms. I don't want vomiting uh, or diarrhea. I want like boils. <laughs> I was going boils filled of something disgusting. <laughs> I was going to so say my- you just suddenly become excessively hairy. <laughs> Fuck you! <laughs> You're just like body hair just increases by like fifty percent. Look, I'm a man of compromise, Tom. Boils filled with body hair. <laughs> Gillette, uh, actually, no, we're we, we're boycotting Gillette. If you are a uh, independent razor company and want to sponsor the show, you know the email. Like Manscape is just going to send me an email again for a fu- to do an ad. Uh, Fuck Manscape. Like that that happened before. They sent me an email. Um, at, it was right after we started the history of Armenia subseries, which you can get access to if you donate on the Patreon. Um, and they immediately sent me an email asking if I'd like if if we would like their sponsorship. So the joke is like, ah, I started I started an entire Armenia centric series, and suddenly I need a shill body groomer. <laughs> also, uh, one of my friends uh, <laughs> nearly cut his nutsack open using their trimmers. So I'm very <laughs> suspicious. This show is not sponsored by Manscaped. Um, Tom, that's a podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here today. You can use this area to plug your show using the the, the biplane plug machine I have given you. <laughs> uh, listen to Beneath the Skin, the show about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing. Uh, even if you don't have tattoos, uh, we do interesting history stuff in the way that this show is technically about military history, but is all of the weird stuff contained within we uh, try and connect the history of tattoos to the wider world we have an interesting episode coming up with um about the history of medieval woodcuts and like how that fundamentally changed the way art is represented in the medieval age and how that has had repercussions going forward uh russian prison tattoos like i always say uh cool stuff like that so check it out Listen to that podcast, and this is the only podcast that I do. So, thank you for listening. Uh, if you like it, consider supporting us on Patreon. Uh, Patreon support is the only way we make money. We do not do ads for nut shavers or anything else. Um, and you get things like Discord access every regular episode early. You get five plus years of bonus content. We have three different bonus series going on between. Lines Led by Robots, The Sharp Show, and The History of Armenia, all of which you can get on Patreon. You get ebooks, you get audiobooks, stickers, uh, you get first uh, dibs on merch when it comes out. So, all sorts of positive things you can get for supporting the show. And uh, uh, eventually, our own branded body shavers. It's just a torch. (laughs) Um, And everybody, thank you so much for listening. And until next time. Put on the mall cans.